From VT Digger, I'm Mike Doherty. This is The Deeper Dig. This week, COVID and the overdose crisis. While the pandemic demanded the attention of the public last year, preliminary data shows that at least 157 Vermonters died in 2020 due to opioid-related overdoses. That's even more than the state lost to COVID. Advocates say that number is alarming. They also point out that the crisis has been worsening for years. You got you got me now? I do. All right, there we go. <laughs> hey, hey. This week, I talked to Kyle Burdett. He's a recovery coach at the Turning Point Center in Rutland, who's seen all this play out on the ground. He said the pandemic has been especially challenging because people were so disconnected, and the work of a recovery coach is really to build relationships with people in need. Uh, we're peers. We are peer recovery coaches. Uh, you know, so that all of us have you know struggled with with substance use at some point in our lives and have found our path to recovery. Um, and that's ultimately the job is um, helping other people to find their path. You have a, a message in your email signature that says, "If you are struggling and your people are just watching you struggle, those are not your people." What does that mean, and uh, why do you keep that there? I, I put that there actually within the first couple of weeks of becoming a, uh, a clinical counselor. Hmm. And it was, I, I was looking around at some of the individuals I was trying to work with and all of their, uh, their quote friends were all of the people that they were, that they were using with. And when those people come into treatment and leave treatment, they go right back out into that world and, and their, their friends are encouraging them to pick up the bottle are encouraging them to pick up another needle, uh, put something up your nose. Um, those aren't your friends. <laughs> those aren't your friends. If you're hurting and, and they're just watching, those really aren't your friends. That's, um, and it just, uh, something about that process really highlighted it for me. You know, I kind of looked around my world and I was like, yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. And those, that's all that's left are the, are, are the people that are supported now. That's, yeah. yeah. How much does your own experience with, with substance you still inform what you do on the day-to-day oh very much so yeah very much so how uh, i can look at someone in in front of me that's that's hurting and tell them yeah i get it and there's power in the knowledge that i really do uh, you know that that uh, i know what it's like to have drank my paycheck again i know what it's like to not know where i'm going tonight I know what it's like to not know when I'm going to eat next. Um, and there's power in that. That's, that's part of that connection I'm looking to make with individuals versus, and, and I'm not trying to take away from the clinical work in any way, shape or form. I, I, I appreciate its value. Um, but when a clinical counselor tries to identify that, it's, it's much more of an I understand. Hmm. Um, I get it. <laughs> I've been there. I have an understanding of it as well. I learned a bunch of stuff in school, so I understand as well. But but I get it because I've been there. Yeah. Uh, and that informs my work every day. I'm curious if you could take me back to sort of the opening weeks of the pandemic. You know, when we first started getting news about self-isolation, lockdowns, yeah. that sort of thing. What's going through your head as you, you start to hear about things like that? For me personally, I was kind of panicking for our people. 
We, uh, you know, we, we went from a bustling uh, center. We are right off from downtown in Rutland. Uh, so, so foot traffic is, is, is pretty big. We had groups here three, four times a week that you know, we were hosting people coming in. So we were always busy, always surrounded by our people. Uh, and then we were all working from our kitchen tables. Hmm independently and relying on digital means, the telephone, uh, Facebook even, you know, uh, whatever digital means that our people were connected to as our only resource for staying connected with them. And I didn't think it was going to work. I'll I'll be perfectly honest with you. I just didn't think it was going to work. And I'm really glad I was wrong. Uh, we did lose some people. You know, we we lost some people to the isolation. I feel like you know that set them back into some old patterns, um, old, old thought patterns, old, old emotional patterns. Um, but we managed to maintain contact with uh, a large majority uh, of our our population, and in fact, even increased our contact through that. We picked up new individuals um, by being willing to adapt. What's the significance of that? first point of contact. Why is it so important to, to be able to access people uh, right at that initial moment? Well, it, you know, to, to oversimplify what we do um, at, the, at the core of recovery coaching is making connection w- with individuals. Um, and so that first contact, that's the, that's that moment we're, we're hoping to connect in some, in some real way with an individual, you know, versus just being another provider or someone that's going to provide just another diagnosis or another referral. Um, we want to make connections with people. Uh, you know, Johan Hari uh, uh, has a theory of addiction that says that um, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, but rather it's connection. Um, and we very much operate under that philosophy that it's that connection where we're we're trying to make uh, something a little more personal for an individual. We know from looking at the numbers from last year that overdoses went up by a lot. And, you know, I know that's really only one way to to quantify the scope of the crisis here. From where you're seeing things here on the ground, what does that rise in overdoses look like to you? How are you seeing this? Um It looks like we're losing a lot of friends. It looks like we're losing people that we have connection with. That's the um, the tough side uh, of the work that we do is is we really are making connections with people. Um, I, I, I care for the people that I work with, uh, and we're losing them. That, that's what it looks like to us. I, I wonder how much do you feel like this increase has to do with COVID? Um. I don't want to say 100%, uh, but but pretty high. Uh, when our, our individuals lost direct contact with with their primary support groups, uh, and I'm, I'm talking AANA uh, you know, sorts of groups, so that that isolation for for our individuals, you know, the immediate isolation, the lockdown. I, I got to believe that it, it, it tremendously affected uh, people. And, and if that wasn't the direct cause, it was certainly sort of the opening of the valve as we all went through the reality of a pandemic. And when you're dealing with people who's in, in our, in my mind, in our mind, um, you know, they're one of their primary concerns is, is connection. When you take away all that connection at, you know, at the drop of a hat, it's just gone. It, it does unpleasant things to individuals. Let's add in a nice healthy stimulus check. Let's give somebody a larger amount of money than they've had in a very long time. 
you know, it, uh, uh, it was almost a comedy of errors that I, I feel like sort of set up a lot of individuals, um, you know, for, for the, the ultimate cost of this. When we come back, how COVID relief money could help recovery programs expand. Just a quick message from our underwriters. Community Health is Vermont's largest federally qualified health center. Affordable, accessible, quality primary health care at Community Health includes dental, pediatric, behavioral health, and pharmacy services. With practices in Rutland, Paulette, Shoreham, Brandon, and Castleton, new patients are always welcome. And centers are open seven days a week at Express Care in Rutland and Castleton. Community Health accepts Medicaid and offers sliding scale fees, making health care accessible to everyone. Community Health. Your health is our mission. Hi, Emma. Thanks for jumping on. Thanks, Mike. VT Digger's Emma Cotton has been reporting on the crisis. We know that this past year has been incredibly unusual with the pandemic uh, for everyone, but you've been reporting on how it's impacted the opioid problem in Vermont. I wonder, how do we go about quantifying the problem as we've seen it over the past few years and as we've seen it change during the pandemic? So I think this is a really interesting question because we heard a lot about the opioid epidemic in around 2013 and 2014. Governor Shumlin at that point gave his state of the state address and specifically dedicated it to the opioid crisis. It's a crisis bubbling just beneath the surface that may be invisible to many, but it's already highly visible to law enforcement, medical personnel, social services, addiction treatment providers, and far too many Vermont families. Around that time, the New York Times also wrote a story about Rutland, how Rutland had sort of fallen victim to heroin um, and crime rates were going up. And the issue was receiving quite a lot of attention at that point. In 2014, 63 Vermonters died of overdose. And I think there's sort of been somewhat of an impression among those of us who are not super close to the issue that maybe there was enough action at that point taken that this issue was sort of has gotten better. I think I've I've spoken to people who were under the impression that that's the case. And in reality, fatalities, you know, that are related to opioid overdose have increased every year except for 2019. In 2020, we saw a, a 38% increase in opioid-related fatalities, and that's only a preliminary number. So um, we know that at least 157 people died. Vermonters died, which is around three people per week, um, and is actually more than the number of people who died due to COVID-19 in 2020. You know, I've been hearing from advocates and people who are, you know, on the ground recovery coaches who are close to this issue, who are just sort of crying out that this is sort of existential for a lot of these people, that this is a really, really serious problem right now. What do we know about how much COVID has or has not played a role in those numbers? You know, that's a pretty dramatic increase that you talked about last year. Is the pandemic the cause of that? Do we know? It's really hard to say definitively whether it is the cause, but I think most people are saying that it is really reasonable to expect that the pandemic has exacerbated, you know, opioid overdose and opioid use. You know, I've heard from people who say COVID-19 is causing so much pain. Uh, People are losing people, you know, there's a lot of grief, people have lost their jobs, um, people are isolated. And so opioids are 
pain relievers. And people are, I think, turning to this right now. And I think also the isolation is really difficult for a number of reasons. But one, you know, I think people are using alone more than they were before the pandemic. I've heard over and over how, you know, Narcan has been used quite a bit recently. I think people sort of have an understanding that they should have that around. They should have someone with them who has it. So in case they overdose, you know, they have someone there who can immediately sort of reverse that overdose. And if someone is using alone, obviously that is not an option. The other thing that we're seeing an increase with is fentanyl. And I think that's really chiefly behind the rise in fatalities. Vermont has done a number of things, um, including reducing the number of opioids that are prescribed to people, the amount of opioids that are prescribed to people. But, you know, that's sort of a solvable problem. Fentanyl is a much harder thing to address. It's hard to know whether there might have been more fentanyl coming in last year or something like that could have occurred alongside COVID-19. But COVID-19 definitely exacerbated this problem. I, I guess another question on that would be, does it matter whether COVID caused these numbers or not? I mean, does it change the way that people are responding to that increase? In some ways it doesn't because a lot of the solutions need to happen anyway. At least this is what I'm hearing from a lot of advocates that I've spoken with. It's exacerbating an existing problem that we still are working to address in many ways. So, you know, for example, I know I think 9,271 Vermonters uh, were receiving medication-assisted treatment in 2020. There are around between 15,000 and 20,000 people who um, need treatment, and that includes people who are already receiving it. But, you know, only around half of the people who need that treatment are currently receiving it. So it looks like there needs to be an expansion of the programs that can help these people find recovery. And I think that expansion probably needs to occur whether or not COVID-19 is here. So you've been looking at how some of these programs work, what these recovery coaches do and you know how they go about trying to help people through this. What have you seen on the ground? Yeah. Well, so the state has set up um, what's called a hub and spoke system. A hub is a treatment facility that focuses specifically on opioids. And then a spoke is a physician practice. So that could be like a psychiatrist or a primary care physician or an OBGYN. And those are people who can sort of tangentially help with recovery. And this is kind of the model that, that's been in place for a while. It has. That's the model that's been in place for a while. Some people might be referred to a hub when they have an overdose and are in the emergency room. So the Turning Point Center, for example, um, responds to those and, and can set people up with treatment then and there. People can also decide that they're ready to try to achieve recovery and, you know, they can reach out specifically to a program like the Turning Point. I spent a lot of time with the Turning Point in Rutland and they're doing some really interesting things. They have cookouts on Thursdays right now and, you know, they'll have signs. People will drive by and they're holding out signs that are just saying, you know, come grab a burger, come talk to us. They're really trying to invite people in and just start the conversation. And while I was there, you know, I'm sort of hearing their conversations, just being really grateful that people are calling in to try to achieve help. I think one of the things I've heard over and over again is that, you know, recovery coaches just being open and saying, hey, I've I've been through this before. Like, it's okay. You don't have to feel ashamed. Like, let's work this, through this together. And showing that kind of lack of stigma and compassion is really important. So that is what they are definitely prioritizing. But then, you know, medication-assisted treatment is also something that has been incredibly important for people to be able to access. And what exactly does medication-assisted treatment look like? You know, if somebody is, is able to 
access that program, what is their treatment plan actually like? Yeah, so there are a few different medications. One is buprenorphine, which is, you know, has been prescribed. And that's a drug where it's coming from a pharmacy in most cases. It's, it doesn't have the potential to be laced with fentanyl. And it is not really giving people a euphoric sensation, but it is curbing their cravings. And it is uh, preventing them from entering withdrawal, which is obviously a really painful process. It's been hailed by many advocates as really a great way to enter recovery. The other drug is methadone. So there's this bill that's been moving through the legislature this session that would legalize small amounts of non-prescribed buprenorphine, like that people haven't gotten through a medication-assisted treatment program. From the advocates that you've been talking to, how significant a step would that be? I mean, what do they think would, would actually change on the ground if this bill really goes all the way? It would help people access buprenorphine immediately. Hmm. So I think one of the biggest challenges to folks entering recovery is you know, they'll show up at a treatment center ready to take on recovery, which is a difficult process for them. And they may be told once they arrive, you know, okay, we'll come back in in a week. And for that person, you know, that person may have just lost their chance to enter recovery. I think Mm -hmm. what I've heard over and over is that it's really important to capitalize on the moment when someone feels ready. So for people to be able to access this away from a doctor's office or before they're ready to officially come forward and make an appointment with a physician to access buprenorphine, that is a, another gateway to recovery um, and an important one. You know, I think there are quite a few people who have entered recovery in Vermont who did it through non-prescribed buprenorphine and uh, the testimony on this bill I think, showed that to legislators who it seemed really, really came around in the end. I wonder what other solutions are on the table to get at what seems to be a worsening crisis. There is definitely funding coming in from COVID-19 that is going to help this. I think there's around $12 million that will be funneled to these, you know, treatment and and prevention centers, the turning point centers will likely receive some of that money. I'm not sure it's entirely decided where that's going to go and how. What I've heard from people who are close to the situation is that it's, it's about harm reduction. It's about trying to get people who are going through this to feel ready to access recovery. As much as Vermont has addressed stigma since 2014, when Governor Shumlin gave his state of the state on this, you know, some stigma still definitely does exist. And, you know, it sounds sort of like a a lofty goal to try to reduce stigma, but I think that is one of the number one barriers that prevents people from seeking treatment. You know, that's a constant work in progress also. But it sounds like getting into one of these recovery programs for a lot of people really is the only way. I think it is. And improving access and expanding the number of locations where people can seek that kind of treatment is going to be vital to this. Um, I think In Burlington, there are low barrier recovery centers where people can go, but in the more rural areas, you know, in Southern Vermont and maybe in the um, Northeast Kingdom and the farther reaches of the state, that kind of treatment isn't necessarily available. And it's, it's really difficult for people to, to access. So an expansion of those systems is really important. I asked Kyle Burdett what he thought should happen next. In terms of big picture solutions. What do you see as the way out of this? I I wish I knew. Uh, If I had that answer, I'd I'd have a much different job, I guess. Um, I like what I'm seeing. Um, 
speaking just just speaking of addiction um, and substance use disorder, the conversation is is being had in the light of day. Um, people are talking about it. Active steps are being taken to reduce stigma, to increase programming, to increase connection. Um, that's ultimately the, the the way out of it. I, I think it's unreasonable to to assume that that we can make addiction a thing of the past. But there's certainly a lot we could do to improve the state of, of how we're treating addiction and substance use disorder. You can read Emma's full story on the overdose crisis at vtdigger.org. You're listening to The Deeper Dig, a weekly podcast from the VT Digger newsroom. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll get new episodes as soon as they land. We use music this week by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger Newsroom. See you then.